If you have your Bibles or devices, turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 2 and verse 42, and we will get there in a few moments. Acts 2, 42. We are entering into a look at the book of Acts, and we are not doing it uh, exegetically, expositionally, where we go every verse, because it would take us forever to do that. But we are looking at snapshots of what God is doing, how the works that are going on are not just the acts of the apostles. They're actually the acts, the continued acts of Jesus himself, the risen king who came and established his kingdom and is released and sent out his church to be his representatives, his witnesses to their Jerusalem and their Judea and Samaria and even the uttermost parts of the earth. And we are still in that window Those of us sitting here today who are in Christ Jesus have been given the same commission that they were given. And we have been given the same commandment that they were given. And we are required to follow him just as they were. And so we're looking at how the church was lit on fire. How God in his Holy Spirit sending upon them, they were endued with power and it changed them. It empowered them. And it enabled them to go out as his witnesses and change the world. Last week, we looked at the similarities between God giving the law at Mount Sinai and God giving the Holy Spirit atop Mount Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And it's really cool, the comparison that you can make between those two moments. Both groups were were told to assemble, to gather, and to wait for the Lord and what he had promised. And both heard distinct sounds. The thunder and the trumpet blast growing louder and louder at Mount Sinai. And the sound of a mighty rushing wind at Pentecost. And they both saw things. They, They saw fire. Um, as the Lord descended on Mount Sinai, you could see fire and smoke and thunder and lightning. And on the day of Pentecost, they saw divided tongues of fire that were resting upon each of those that were in the upper room. These similarities are more than just being uncanny. They are significant. They're profound. God always points to the ultimate in what he does And as I've often said to you, the Old Testament and the New Testament are intrinsically connected. For in the Old, you have the New concealed. And in the New Testament, you have the Old revealed. And so these similarities are something that are profound. And I love studying them as you look at what God did. But those are not the only comparisons that we can make with Old Testament promises. And the fulfillment that we find of those promises in Jesus himself and his sending the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. For example, there's the Old Testament tabernacle erected by Moses. And when you read about it in Exodus 40, you see that God's presence showed up so thick that Moses could not even enter the tent of meeting. With such a profound presence of God, no one could enter. And 
Later in 1 Kings 8, when the temple that was built by King Solomon was being dedicated, we see that God's glory shows up so thick and so intense that the priest could not even stand in his midst. The power of God is real. There's a couple of amens. The power of God is real. You may be dull to that reality, and you may not be aware of the fullness of it, but I promise you, when you encounter the manifest presence of God, it is thick. We touch it some here, and I'm grateful for that. We, we come close to drawing near to him, and I'm grateful for that, but my prayer is that we would touch in a new dynamic way the power and presence of the Almighty God. May it happen in our midst. Both the tabernacle and the temple are pointing to Jesus, who is the fulfillment and the ultimate reality of both. That's why John in his gospel would tell us that Jesus is the Word made flesh, who pitched his tent among us, who dwelt among us, who tabernacled among us. And in Jesus, we beheld the glory of the Father. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But even more astonishing than that is that he also sent to us his Holy Spirit that the Spirit might take up residence in us. In these earthen vessels, these jars of clay, that we might have the very living God, the presence and power, the, the Holy Spirit residing inside of us. And as such, becoming his new temple. The Apostle Paul voiced this in many places in his letters. But the one that's most direct and profound is in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He said, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. Now, you've heard me say this before, but that you is plural, both times. So it's like saying, for y'all are God's temple. You all, y'all are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in y'all. His spirit dwells in us and makes us the temple of God. And then he wrote to the Ephesians, he said in Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. A holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the kind of reality that we're talking about when we read through the book of Acts. This is what's literally happening. There is a spiritual building project going on. There's a spiritual project of taking these, the followers of Jesus, and making them into his new and living temple. And we see it taking shape throughout. We're witnessing a, a changing of the guard, so to speak. 
where you see the old temple and its system being replaced with God's new temple. And the two stand in stark contrast to one another. The old temple is a massive and ornate structure established with great tradition and wielded political and tremendous clout. But it had little, it had little concern for doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. But this new temple that Jesus is building, this new temple is made up of living stones. Living stones that have the chief cornerstone as their foundation and who are being formed into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, his son. The old temple was led by a religious class and kept in power by the occupiers in Rome. But the new temple is built from the poor in spirit who are endued with power from on high when they were baptized with the spirit. The old temple was defined by wealth and elitism. The new temple by generosity and belonging. The old grasping for power. The new giving it away. And the distinction of this new temple that is being formed is brilliantly portrayed in the book of Acts on multiple occasions. But I think quite beautifully in the verses I asked you to turn to. Acts 2 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What an amazing picture of God's new temple. What a portrait. There's been sermon, multiple sermons done on these verses. And it's almost tempting not to look at them because it's been so overused. And yet when I read this, the truth of God's word, I say, Lord, let that be the description of our church. May it be so of your people in this day. This is an incredible picture of his new temple and such a dichotomy from the old temple. These living stones are being built up into a new spiritual house, a new place where God's presence dwells. And they're devoting themselves to the teaching that is given by Jesus through the, new, through the apostles. And they are giving themselves to intentional and, and purposeful and intimate fellowship with one another. Not just a nice high during greeting time but in knowing so deeply that you can walk and intercede and build up and encourage. 
And they are giving themselves to breaking a bread, which is probably not only the Eucharist meal, but also gathering around one another's tables and knowing each other and strengthening one another at a table rather than a pew. And they are giving themselves to fervent prayer and to worship and praising him and even having extravagant generosity by everyone on behalf of everyone. And while they're in their homes, they're gathering, but they're breaking bread there, but they don't limit it just to home. They go out, they're sent out, and they even go into their old temple, having the favor of God rest upon them. The Bible says with all the people, And that favor is causing things to happen. And then day by day, day by day, God is adding to their numbers those who are being saved. Now, I really love that phrase, day by day. Day by day. It speaks to an ongoing process. You see, the 3,000 that got saved on the day of Pentecost, they usually get all the top billing, don't they? We think of it as this mass crusade or something where 3,000 were added to them in one day. And that's amazing. And we validate in large crusade that might have happened worldwide. And I'm not being critical, but we validate that based off of what happened on the day of Pentecost. But let me tell you how the church grew most of the way. It was day by day by day as God was adding to them those who were being saved. The one at Pentecost gets all the top billing. I mean, you had the commotion and you had the tongue speaking and you had Peter all of a sudden sudden finding an anointing to preach a sermon, which was amazing. But it's critical to see that the most important day was not just that day, but the day by day thereafter. I think the modern church relies too much on what I would call a field of dreams theology. You know that movie, Field of Dreams, by Kevin Costner, about baseball. He's out there longing for something he didn't have with his father. You know the movie, right? Thank you. And he hears this voice. If you build it, they will come. Right? And so he builds this baseball diamond out in a cornfield and lo and behold all these baseball ghosts find their way to the field and I think the church goes about building their church on that theology if we build it they will come I felt the Holy Spirit as I said that so many churches are building something beautiful thinking they will come But the central thing that is happening is that Jesus is building us into something beautiful and telling us to go. We want them to come. And he said, why don't you go? There's a big difference. I'm not opposed to buildings and structures and having things here at this church. But I want to see you go out there and be the church where he's called us to be. Feels like the Lord is calling right now. (laughs) I hear you, Lord. You don't see the New Testament setting up shop with the expectation that people will come. You see them going out 
under the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit. And as they go, God is giving them favor and he's adding to them daily, to their numbers, those that are being saved. You know, for a couple of years now, our leaders as a church, we have been considering and trying to discover and clarify what we would call our church's DNA. Now, they didn't have that terminology in the book of Acts. But I think we just read something that helps you understand what their DNA was. You know what I mean by that. I'm not a scientist. But I want to know what makes us what we are. The things that God has put into us. The words he's spoken to us. And the things that exude out of us. Up out of us. And, and that get anyone around us contaminated with it. Right? Jamie likes to say if you go to a crime seed, there's DNA everywhere. And I, I wonder if people get around us, what DNA they pick up. And so we've been processing as leaders, Lord, what is it that you have put in us? And I, I think it's kind of like what we have seen, that it's the things we value, our core values in life. And when you overlap that with the things that we're somewhat good at, our competencies, and then you overlay that and the things that we're highly motivated for, in that little sweet spot is our DNA. And so we've been going through this process now for a few years, and we've recognized seven words or phrases that we think speak to our church's DNA. The first is kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, we are kingdom people. Jesus came announcing the gospel of his kingdom. He taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know from scripture, even in Old Testament, that of the, government, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And so we want to be kingdom people. We also want to be those that are covenant relationship people. We believe that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And so if you squeeze us just a little bit, you're going to find kingdom and you're going to find covenant oozing out of us. Also, life in the Spirit. I mean, how can you talk about Pentecost and not understand that we're all called to live a life in the Spirit? He's given us His Spirit. And he's called us to live life in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to stay in step with the Spirit. And we're also called to make disciples. Discipleship is at the core. We ourselves are called to be his disciples who make disciples of him, who will make disciples, who will make disciples, and it continues. And also, we believe that we have a unique and historic calling as a church community to reach the next generation. We just had an amazing camp two weeks ago where that part of our DNA was focused on massively about reaching our children and our young people and the community of young people that are around us. And also we believe in spiritual authority. We believe that God, who alone has authority over all things, when we submit to him, then we have a degree of spiritual authority given to us to exercise authority, to bless, to wage spiritual warfare, and to intercede for others. But the reason I share this with you is not because this is the primary focus of my sermon, but really that last one is what really touches what we're talking about today. The mission of God. 
we believe that God is a sending God. The Father sent the Son, and the Son sent that which was promised by the Father, the Spirit. And the Spirit sends the church into the world. We are committed to His mission. It's not our mission for Him, it's His mission. The church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. And so we are called to be giving ourselves and making it central to our lives that we are going along with him, being sent out with him, and we are loving our neighbors and we are loving one another and we are loving our city. This is what you get when you read the book of Acts. You get God's mission throughout that book. And I think as Christians and followers of Jesus today, we have to be asking ourselves, how am I doing when it comes to God's mission? Is it even a consideration of mine? Is it even an intercession of mine? Is it even something I consider and talk about and ponder how he might use me? The church is not only a manifestation of God's new temple. It is also those who are being sent out led out by the Holy Spirit. Like in my favorite story in Acts, Acts 3, which I alluded to last week, but it's just too good not to talk about it again. Acts 3 is such a powerful story. You have Peter and John. They're going to the old temple to pray. And on their way, they see this man who's been lame his whole life. And he's begging for alms at the temple gate called Beautiful. The irony of the story is just palpable. It is, it's so poignant when you realize the distinctions between the old institution of the temple and what God is doing in building a new one. These two young disciples, more than likely Peter being about 20, probably John a teenager or younger, these two young leaders in God's new temple standing now in the shadow of the old temple, with the lame man who's been begging in front of that same old temple longer than these two have been alive. What a contrast between the old and the new. It's also a picture of how they were being sent. They weren't staying back. They were going with. In fact, the scripture opens in Acts 3.1. As they were going. And as they are going, they are met with this man's overwhelming need and him thinking he could get something from them that would help his basic needs. But what he needed was what they had, even though what he asked for was not what they had at all. And so they looked at him. They looked in his direction. And they're like, look, man, we're penniless. Silver and gold, we don't have any of that. But let me tell you what we do have. And we're willing to give it to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they reached down and grabbed his arms. And as they pulled him up, strength came to his legs. And the Bible says he began walking and leaping and praising God. Right there in the shadow of the old temple, the new temple had been revealed. The question it raises for us today as God's people, as his church in this day, in this time, to this generation, is where are we in this story? 
Are we building a beautiful gate hoping somebody will come? Or are we sitting lame in front of a beautiful gate hoping someone will be merciful? Or do we know and realize that we ourselves are becoming a beautiful gate that Jesus will use in this world today? Following the Spirit requires obedience and courage. It requires the power that comes from the Holy Spirit himself. It requires the tenacity that he will give us and the fortitude. It requires him to fill us over and over again because we leak. But when we give ourselves to that, he will take us to places that we could have never gone on our own. He will take us places that are challenging to us, even our own culture in which we find ourselves, even our own churches at times, and our own families. Yet we must be willing to follow the Spirit into the unknown, where he is out there, not where he is always in here. And rather than holding a form of godliness and religion like the old temple did, that we would be filled with power, never denying the power of God. Today, may we remember that we are living stones. We are being built up into a new and living temple. It's not a static, stationary structure that we place somewhere. It's a living people built on the chief cornerstone of Jesus called to go out into this community and love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's devote ourselves to the teaching that he has given us, the apostolic teaching, not just what I say, but the word of God given to your heart and life. And let us give ourselves to intimate and intensive fellowship, koinonia, and breaking of bread. And let us be fervent in prayer and worship. And let us also be extravagant in generosity. And remember that being his temple is not a stationary position. It's a living temple. We're to be sent out by his spirit and give what we've been given. May we hear what the spirit is saying to us today. Amen. My, mom, my wife is going to come and we're going to share. She's going to share for a moment. And then we're going to pray for you. Can you do it? Anytime we <clears throat> hear a word about the church, um, the who we are, not the place where we're meeting at the moment, um, I find it convicting, um, inspiring, faith lifting. Um, I think that if you are a member of a believing community, you can either forget the responsibility of that or you for can forget the wonder of it. Mm. And both of those things are bad. That's true. Um, I was reading something from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his book Life Together. Many of you have read it. But in there, he talks about how important it is not to let your thoughts go unfiltered about members of your community. What you see, what you observe, what you're praying about, that we actually don't have 
the right or the privilege, the preference, to think ill of one another. Mm. And so when Chris is talking about the two temples, he was very clear, we are the temple of the Lord altogether, that he dwells with us. But some of his descriptions of the other temple can sometimes apply to us too. That's true. So when I pray for us today, I'm praying for myself included, that I will see God's people the way he does. My part in that and all of us together, because nothing is going to be accomplished apart from the way we intercede for each other. When we're winning and when we're struggling and when maybe we've already gone under, it's how we pray for each other that matters. That is going to lead us into the mission. That's going to make sure we have all those pieces of DNA because it's the Holy Spirit shedding that abroad in our hearts that unites us and compels us. Exactly. So praying for us today that we, we get a vision of who we are and whose we are and that it does the work in us that God intended. Amen. Would you join with us as we pray? Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for your line of truth that you draw around us and create boundary lines in our thoughts, in our choices, in our everyday lives. Thank you for the truth of whose we are. Thank you for the call to be a new temple built with living stones coming together under your headship where every joint supplies. Father, I pray for each one of us here that you would convict us for the way we see the church, your people, that you would compel us to get out there where people are who don't go to church and talk not about the meeting or the building, but the fact that you are head of it all, that you care, that you're engaged, and that we get to join you in what you are doing, not because we are special or valuable or gifted in any way, but because you are Lord of all. Father, thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit that cleanses us from unbelief, that sets us on the right path and reminds us of the truth that you've shared in our hearts. I pray that we would each be obedient to what we hear in your name. We thank you, Lord, for what you're building. You said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We confess to you, Lord, when we look at the church, much of it today, or that which claims to be your people. We wonder about that. Looks pretty weak and frail at times, pretty puny, lacking unity, seemingly walking away from your word. But Lord, I know you're building. And I know you're purifying, pruning, and purging as well. And you will have for yourself a people. You will have for yourself a bride without spot or blemish. 
And we want to be in the wedding. We want to be your bride. So use us, God. Purge us. Purify us. Cleanse us of the wrongful motives and the things that get in the way. Help us, oh God, to not be those who try to build something that's artificially beautiful or those that are sitting lame in front of something called beautiful. But help us realize that you are building in us something beautiful. Lord, we want to be your people, useful in your hand. This church wants to be useful in your hand. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to love one another as Christ loves us. And we want to love this city, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. We ask these things in your name. Amen.